1960s was a tumultuous period for Ireland's Department of External Affairs, as it was called then, Foreign Affairs now. Ireland sought to join the European Economic Community, but for various reasons, membership remained out of reach. Relations with London were affected by local and international economic difficulties. There were new social and political forces in the North, recurring sectarian violence, and Dublin's fragile relations with Belfast destabilised. All this against the backdrop of the Cold War and nuclear anxiety. I'm joined now by Michael Kennedy. Michael is executive editor of the Documents on Irish Foreign Policy, volume 13, 1965 to 1969, published by the Royal Irish Academy, which covers this period in Irish foreign policy. Michael, you're very welcome back to the History Show. Um, The period covered in the latest volume is uh, sadly a living memory (laughs) for for a lot lot of us. Um, Time of great change in the world, moon landing, assassinations of Martin Luther King, uh, Robert Kennedy, outbreak of the Troubles. What was Ireland's place in the international arena at the time? And did Ireland's foreign policy change to keep up with these monumental world events? Ireland is kind of a, a, a two-stroke, if I can put it that way, place in the international arena that we're, we're still quite a respected figure in the UN. That's the, the signature issue of foreign policy. Frank Aiken is minister. And Ireland has been working its way up through the, the UN echelons since membership in 1955. By the late 60s, the UN is the area that Aiken wants foreign policy to revolve around. And But the UN is changing and it's becoming more involved in, in kind of post-colonial matters, social matters. They don't in- interest Aiken so much. But the really uh, big force in Irish foreign policy is Europe, as you said in your introduction there. And Ireland wants membership of the EEC. And where we're a respected member of the UN, it's not so clear with regard to Europe that the six, as it then was, members of the EEC, do they really want Ireland to be a member? Because is Ireland economically uh, advanced enough to get in? Is Ireland really a developed country? And there are other issues linked to, say, the the Anglo-French antagonism over Charles de Gaulle not wishing uh, Britain to be a member of the EEC. And Ireland, of course, will join the EEC on Britain's coattails, although Ireland applies uh, independently because British-Irish trade is so critical to Ireland. If Britain joined the EEC and Ireland was left out, we'd be in a very difficult position. But if uh, Britain doesn't join the EEC, Ireland doesn't join the EEC. So what happens between Paris and London has a big influence on Irish foreign policy. They're the two main areas, but there's also, and this is indicative of the, the end of that this particular decade, Ireland is looking outwards. Jack Lynch goes on a visit to India and to Japan in 1968. We're talking about opening diplomatic missions in Tokyo, maybe even in Moscow, perhaps in Beijing, and the Department of External Affairs is looking outwards. So the 1960s are a period where Ireland is looking out beyond the Western European Anglo-Irish framework that was part of foreign policy out to having a truly global reach for what was a very small Department of External Affairs. You mentioned Frank Aiken, Minister for External Affairs, who I think when he looked outwards looked not much further than New York and the United Nations. So that famous cartoon, I think it was the Dublin Opinion cartoon of the plane flying past the Statue of Liberty and the Statue of Liberty going, how are you, Frank? That's right. Um, but uh, what was his reaction to that new outlook on the part of his uh, civil servants? Was he enthusiastic He's about He's not. It? No, it's, it's something we, we found. And there's, I should say there's a, a group of us involved in DIFP, my colleagues, uh, Kate O'Malley, John Gibney, and then uh, Yunana Halpin, Bernadette Whelan, uh, Kevin O'Sullivan and Jennifer Redmond. There's a, there's a whole group of us working through these, these archives. And what we found when we were looking at 
Aiken in this period was he doesn't want to change. He doesn't want the department to move outwards. He doesn't want that global reach. He's just interested in New York, in the UN. And you can see a kind of muted antagonism amongst the senior officials in the department, like Hugh McCann, the, the Secretary General, we'd say now, trying to push the agenda, particularly Tokyo and opening up trade with Japan is something Ireland's getting very interested in in, in the late 60s. But Aiken doesn't want to do this. Aiken also is interested only in relations between states, by and large. But this is a period where Ireland is getting interested in the individual in foreign policy. That means human rights issues, social issues, areas at the UN like birth control, the rights of women and uh, gender equality and that are coming to the fore in Irish foreign policy. And Aiken is a man of the 1930s and the 1920s. He's not particularly interested in this new form of foreign policy that is going to really be at the core of, of Ireland's international agenda in the 70s and, of course, since. And he also seemed to have been Minister for External Affairs for about a thousand years at that stage. Oh, yeah. I do. <laughs> uh, now, entry into the EEC. You talked about it already. We, we didn't get there until 1973, so I assume it'll all be coming up in Bolivar. 14. Um, but there was a lot of groundwork done and that helped when we came to the tipping point of membership in 1972-73. So uh, just tell me a little bit about the kind of preparation, the kind of contacts that were mm. being made. Well, in this period, foreign policy is being run by the Taoiseach. Sean Lamas and after him Jack Lynch are running foreign policy and their foreign policy is get into Europe and get in by 1970. Hopefully de Gaulle will change his mind and, and will be in. So the, the basis of foreign policy towards Europe is run from the Department of the Taoiseach with the Department of External Affairs and the Department of Finance, Agriculture and Industry and Commerce running the show from Dublin's point of view. There's a body brought into being called the Committee of Secretaries, the Secretaries General of the top departments, and their remit is to do the, the official level consideration of foreign policy. But where it gets very interesting is in Brussels at the Commission and how Irish diplomats get their point of view across to the, the EU Commission or the EC Commission and to the six members and of, of the EC. And it's our ambassador to the European Economic Community, Sean Morrissey, who is very, very adept at reading the lie of the land in Brussels and reporting back to Dublin saying, look, Brussels has issues in mind or the French are becoming a problem here. Look, we don't want to create a fuss, but we want Europe to know that we want to join. And European integration is key to our economic policy in the 60s and the 70s. And I think it's that link between Morrissey and his colleagues, uh, Brendan Dillon and others in Brussels and Dublin, that is key to getting the Irish point of view across. I mean, we, we tried to get into the EC again in 1967, and France is having none of it. De Gaulle is having none of it. And Lynch and his colleagues, particularly Ken Whitaker, are the shuttle diplomacy hasn't been invented yet by Henry Kissinger, but that hmm. whole concept of shuttling round the capitals of the six, making the Irish case, trying to get across to them that, yes, we are a peripheral country, yes, we're predominantly agricultural, but we are fit for EEC entry. And that's at the core of, of that phase of foreign policy, showing that we're Europe fit, if you like, and that we, we can get in. And that links in back into UN policy where we get interested in development aid, because only a developed country 
has the ready resources to embark on a development aid program. So we're kind of playing our interest in the UN social agenda for a kind of cynical reason there to show, yes, we are a developed country. Yes, we can get into the European... I don't think the phrase soft power would have been recognised back then. Not at that stage. Essentially what you're talking about. Not by Frank Aiken. What about the United Nations itself? Uh, Did the UN change its policies in response to the upheavals that were going on in response to the process of decolonisation that was going on in Africa Mm. in particular, for example, and in response to to the Cold War? And if so what part did Ireland play, if, if any part, in that process? It's a very different period for Ireland at the UN. You think of the, the early 60s, that great phase where we're, we're sort of in the golden age of UN membership, Aiken, Cruz O'Brien, Fred Boland, Congo. By the mid-1960s, the UN has changed. It's become a more radical organisation in terms of the, the small states, the, the newly independent states of Africa and Southeast Asia who've taken over the balance of power in the General Assembly. And that's changed away from the kind of views that Aiken was espousing. And Ireland is no longer a radical in the UN. Ireland is uh, kind of a respected small player in the UN. And it's uh, involved in, in peacekeeping missions still in, in Cyprus, but there's nothing of the, the tumult of the Congo experiment of the, the early 60s. So late 60s UN policy revolves around a couple of, of episodes that Aiken tries to get off the ground to ensure the proper payment of peacekeeping, the balancing of the UN budget, and none of them really get traction amongst the great powers. The big success of late 60s UN policy is the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. And Ireland, through the Irish Resolution of, I think, 1961 and through Aiken, is an instrumental player in getting this fundamental foundation of the non-proliferation framework to try and prevent the spread of nuclear weapons, getting that into play. And a sign of Ireland's role in that is that Aiken is invited uh, to be one of the first signatories and he signs the treaty in Moscow in, in 1968 along with the Soviet Union and the United States. So we're a small part player in that Cold War drama, what Conor Cruz O'Brien called the sacred drama of the UN. And uh, we still are playing an important role there, but it's balancing up against the points I made earlier about the Europeanisation of foreign policy. So UN, Europe, that's the balance throughout the late 60s. Now, um, let's go back to development, to development aid. Many of us would remember as, as, as children the Biafran War, donating to Biafran children, the famine in Biafra. To what extent was Irish development aid, if I can paraphrase a slogan from World War I, all about little Catholic Biafra? Or to what extent was it about what we were talking about earlier, soft power? I think Biafra is a game changer in Irish foreign policy in development aid. It's a civil war in in Nigeria between the the secessionist province of Biafra and the the rest of the country. There are many Irish missionaries in Biafra. Irish foreign policy towards that area is to try and protect the missionaries while at the same time support the government in in Lagos. And there is quite a, a difficulty for for Aiken for the first time because public opinion in Ireland is on the side of the secessionist Biafrans, spurred on by greater interest in media in in Ireland and also spurred on by a very adept use of the media by Holy Ghost Fathers returning to Ireland to say what's happening in the province. And so citizens in Ireland give aid to uh, Africa Concern, founded at that period, to bring aid to to the Biafrans to alleviate the famine that breaks out in the province. But Aiken and uh, Irish diplomats in Nigeria have to try and steer an even keel and support the government side. So it's it's a time where, for the first time, Aiken comes up against public opinion supporting Biafra 
and being against the foreign policy that the Irish state wanted to bring into being towards Nigeria itself. And what Aiken wanted to do was simply solve the war, bring peace to Biafra by regional intervention, by UN intervention. He didn't want to come down on the side of the Biafrans, Ireland, like most states didn't recognise Biafra. So it became a a foreign policy problem with a a domestic issue for Aiken, and he wasn't used to dealing with that. But through the foundation of Africa concern uh, as uh, a mechanism to bring uh, aid to Biafra, I think it's spurred on the the growth of organisations and NGOs that have become now a, a, a firm part of the Irish foreign policy environment. And they brought public opinion, brought the individual Irish person into the foreign policy making process for the first time. So Biafra is really important from that point of view. And uh, another flashpoint within the parameters of volume 13, 1965 to 1969, was the Middle East, was mm. the Six Day War in 1967. What was Ireland's position there? Well, Ireland's position there is to support the UN and to try and support uh, a disengagement in the area. And Ireland has no diplomatic missions um, east of Vienna, really, at this stage. And our, our nearest mission probably to the Middle East at that stage is the mission in, in Lagos that I was talking about a few moments ago. So the information we get about the Six Day War comes from Aiken in New York. And his involvement is working with Con Kremen, the Irish ambassador to the UN, to try and stop the conflagration in the Middle East expanding out further, you know, Cold War domino effect. Um, it links into other areas of foreign policy where Ireland is supporting Palestinian refugees through trying to give money to UNRWA, the UN uh, Works and Rehabilitation uh, Organisation in the area. So it's kind of the starting point of Ireland's modern interest in the Palestinian question that up to then Irish foreign policy had been quite pro-Israel and Ireland had been pro-Israel at the birth of the state in the 1940s. But now we see the beginnings of a of a change around and uh, an interest in trying to look after individuals in the area, the individual Palestinians, as well as an interest in trying to take the great power politics apart and trying to uh, prevent the war from spreading or prevent conflict from spreading in the area. Now, 1969, the troubles mm. are nigh. Is there a sense of what if about this period. If the troubles hadn't happened, how might Irish foreign policy have developed? I really think so. Like we're, we're all wise in retrospect and we're looking back at that period as a sort of calm before the storm of the, the troubles breaking out. But to Frank Aiken, to Hugh McCann, the, Ireland's head diplomat, to Jack Malloy in London or Con Kremen in, in New York, this is a period where it looks like Ireland is going to broaden out its foreign policy horizons. And the trouble in Northern Ireland is really not on the Department of Foreign Affairs radar to any great extent. Uh, Lynch is over in India, uh, Hawaii, uh, Japan, when the beginnings of the the civil rights movement, the marches in October 1968, the baton charging in in, in Derry uh, by the RUC of the peaceful protests takes place. And I think that's indicative of where Ireland is looking. We're not looking to the north of Ireland. Uh, There haven't been diplomats sent up to get the lie of the land in the north since the, the, the 1950s. So Dublin is really out of touch with grassroots nationalist ideas and, and the developing uh, civil rights movement. All of policy towards Northern Ireland is predicated on improving cross-border cooperation with the unionist government, Terence O'Neill uh, and then uh, Chichester Clark. And that hits the buffers by 1968 into 1969. And the Department of External Affairs is left wondering, where do we go? 
And Aiken isn't really sure how to deal with the early phase of the the troubles, if you like, the the pre-August 1969 phase, uh, because he is trying to follow an anti-partitionist strategy. But then the department briefs in that, well, no, this isn't about partition. This is about human rights for citizens of the UK given to all citizens of the UK. The people in Northern Ireland want the same rights that the people on mainland UK have. And this is a new one for Aiken. And then the, the Irish missions in the US are being bombarded by letters and phone calls and telegrams from the Irish-American community saying, will you bring partition and the situation in Northern Ireland to the General Assembly, bring it to the Security Council? And Aiken doesn't want to do this. He said it won't, it won't uh, lead to anything uh, developing in, in, in a positive way. We don't bring matters like that to the, the Security Council. But of course, I would have to uh, in, in 1969, a year later. He's no longer minister at that stage. So I think Dublin is kind of caught on the back foot because they're looking outwards to another agenda, a global agenda for foreign policy, an agenda based on trade, based on promoting Irish culture, but not one uh, that's based on looking close to home and realising that there is a serious problem about to break out 100 miles up the road. Which means that essentially we have become a foreign policy issue for, for others. And how important was Irish America was Irish American opinion, not just, you know, Washington, Mm. not just the White House or the State Department, but Irish American opinion. And how was external affairs dealing with that? Yeah, Um, Irish American opinion is always hugely important to external affairs. Perhaps they overestimate it, uh, but it's important in, in two ways. One, it has to be placated, say, over Northern Ireland and over the Troubles and trying to get the Irish position across. But then on another level, it's very useful to have Irish-American opinion, particularly uh, on Capitol Hill, if you can get interested senators and congressmen with Irish backgrounds to support the Irish agenda in in the US. And in this period, it's not the kind of the partition agenda that they're looking at as the, the primary topic. It's actually uh, ensuring that Aer Lingus retains sole control of landing rights in Dublin Airport. That's a very technical issue that I'm sure most listeners won't have heard of. The big American airlines are doing their damnedest, Pan Am, TWA, to get into Dublin. They're only allowed land at Shannon at this period. It's another eons ago in, in aviation policy. And Ireland is trying to use Irish-American opinion to say, no, Aer Lingus is the Irish flag carrier and let it maintain its sole monopoly on landing in Dublin airport. This crisis ends up on Henry Kissinger's desk in the 1970s. The Nixon and Ford governments play hardball on it and it brings Irish-American relations to their lowest point since the Second World War. And it's something, we, you know, it's totally forgotten about now, this technical issue of over the politics of transatlantic aviation. Uh, it's the troubles that we think about. And that's another one of those what ifs, where might policy have gone uh, in, in, in a totally different world. That aviation agenda, rather than the Northern Ireland agenda, would have dominated Irish-American relations in the early 1970s. Let's finish with one giant leap for mankind, because obviously July 1969, you have Apollo 11 landing on the moon. Um, is there anything in the book about that oh, there is. momentous we, event? We, we made a point of that, that uh, John, Kate and I wanted to find some of the... The, the kind of the social history of the period. And there is a, it's up there today, a small plaque on, on part of the lander module that has messages from all the nations of the world. And there is a Cupla Focalos Guelga on the moon surface written by Eamon de Valera on a little micro dot plaque brought by Neil Armstrong. And it wishes um, 
it wishes the men who landed on the moon, you know, best wishes from Dublin and also talks and it's very pointed. It goes back to the UN agenda we were talking about. It says that it's good to see that uh, humanity is able to use the technology at its disposal for positive means and not to destroy itself, heading back towards that key area in Irish foreign policy of nuclear non-proliferation. So it's all politics in this, but there is that little bit of the moon that is forever Oscar So therefore, if uh, uh, any of our relatives on the moon come across it, they will become familiar with the Irish language. Oh, they will. They will indeed. On that note, we will finish. Michael, thank you very much indeed. It's always fascinating to delve into the department's archive and to hear about what was going on behind the diplomatic scenes during these periods of great change. Documents on Irish Foreign Policy, Volume 13, 1965 to 1969, is published by the Royal Irish Academy and is available in bookshops now and on their website, ria.ie. My guest is Executive Editor Michael Kennedy. Michael, again, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.